to be at Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And this is what we read there. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat this Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, My teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Thus says God's word, you may be seated. So we're beginning a new series today. We just finished one looking at the six main characters of Genesis. And we're going to, heading into Easter, we're going to be doing a series that we're beginning today called His Last Days. And in this series, we're going to be examining um, the last several hours of Jesus' life, the final activities, the final days of Jesus' life, and his, his, before His eventual crucifixion, before His glorious resurrection. And today, we're going to be taking a look at that event called the Last Supper. At this time in the story, if you were reading the biography of Jesus, known as the Gospels, at this time in the story, Jesus is about 33 years old. And he's been ministering in Judea and Samaria for about three years. And he's had, as many of you know, 12 close disciples. He had several other men and women who followed him faithfully. And many, many, many more who listened uh, to his teachings and benefited from his grace-filled ministry. In the last 33 years, Jesus had healed the sick, he'd healed the blind, he'd healed the deaf, the mute, the lame, he'd driven out demons with just a word, he had even raised the dead on at least three separate occasions. He'd done miracles in the natural world without explanation. He multiplied one little boy's lunch and he fed several thousand people with it. He had ordered a storm out on the lake to, to cease and to be quiet. And at his command, it immediately happened. It obeyed him. And he even, in another instance, the same type of situation, a storm, he got out or he walked across the ocean to get into the boat, rather, right on the waves. Jesus was bigger than the forces of nature. His life was also attended with clear evidence of the presence of God. When he was born, you might recall, an angel choir sang at his birth, at his baptism. The heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And the approving voice of his father saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased was heard audibly. And that voice would be heard at least twice more throughout his ministry. But Jesus had also stirred considerable controversy. The same teachings that awed the crowd sitting on the mountainside threatened and enraged the Jewish leaders who saw this, this backwoods Nazarene carpenter as a serious threat to their hold on power. The gospel writers have told us several times by this point in the story that Jesus' opponents were actively conspiring to put him to death. And this was no surprise to Jesus, however. Did, did you know that you can't sneak up on Jesus? Jesus 
cannot be fooled. He can't be surprised. He can't be tricked. He was no, there was no surprise to him that, that there were men that were conspiring for his death. In fact, three times in the Gospels, three times he had predicted the coming events to his disciples. The third of those times in the book of Matthew, Matthew twenty seventeen says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way to, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So now the Passover, the most significant festival on the Jewish calendar, has arrived. And Jesus has intentionally, knowing that people are there wanting to kill him, Jesus has intentionally made his way to the capital city. Jerusalem was the center of both the celebration of the Passover and the seat of power of those who wanted to kill Jesus at the same time. And Jesus shows up there. I'm telling you, a collision is bound to occur under those circumstances. The Passover itself commemorated the time when the Israelites, a couple thousand years before this, were, uh, were delivered from slavery in Egypt. God had sent, you might recall, nine plagues against their captors. He had turned the Nile into blood. He'd sent frogs and gnats and flies and he'd killed their livestock with disease and crushed the land with hail and he covered it with locusts and he shrouded it in a darkness that the Bible says it was a darkness that could be felt. But even after all of that, all of that that land-wasting disaster, the Egyptians still refused to let God's people go free, even at God's command. So God had a tenth plague. And this plague would be the most devastating, and it would cause the Egyptians eventually to comply. God would send his angel to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. And it would happen on a specific night, but the Israelites were given the key to survival. First, they were to smear the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the frames of the doors leading into their homes, across the top and on the two side posts. And this is what the Bible says. God's, God talks about this, this, this putting of the blood on their doors. And he says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So we get the term Passover. I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, next they were to eat a simple meal consisting of the lamb they had sacrificed along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread and some wine. And they would eat their meal fully dressed and ready to leave Egypt freed from bondage. Now, all of these things were deeply symbolic and and sacred. And therefore, the Israelites were to celebrate this festival annually. They were to do this every single year and do that in perpetuity. They were supposed to do it till the end of all time. They were never, ever to forget the great deliverance from slavery that God had worked for them. And this is what they were in Jerusalem to celebrate. So to celebrate the Passover with the Lord, Jesus was a big deal for the disciples. The only close comparison that you and I can probably make as, as North American 21st century Gentiles is, is maybe Thanksgiving dinner with our family or Christmas Day. That's the only thing that we would have to compare the importance of this day to. 
Three of the four Gospels give us details about how they would prepare for the festival. That's what we read at the beginning. That was Mark's account of how they would prepare for this. And and we see in those words that we read, we see intentionality in Jesus as he considers his final Passover meal. He's going to share it with his beloved friends. And he even says in Luke, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But the gravity of this moment the gravity of this, this celebration that they were entering into and all it meant in, in the spiritual realm and all that was about to transpire in human history, all of that gravity was completely lost on the disciples. Well, how do you know that, Mark? Well, both Luke and John record it sometime during their meal. These 12 knuckleheads break out into an argument about who among them should be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in the physical presence of Jesus Christ? The one you've seen heal, command demons, teach in ways that brought the crowd to a complete uh, amazement. And, and, And you're sitting there in the presence of Jesus Christ and you're having an argument about bragging rights. Can you imagine? may sound absurd to us, but I have been in many, many churches where that was exactly what was happening. In the presence of the Lord, there was just a bunch of arguing and bickering about who was the greatest. Who's the greatest preacher? Who's the greatest worship leader? Who's the greatest prayer? Who's the greatest this or that? And, and, and the, the, the fact that they were in the presence of God was just lost. Well, it's a great way to wag your finger at a congregation as a preacher, but I'm also ashamed to admit that too often it was me doing the bragging. And I'm the only one. I appreciate your grace to let me continue. Really kind of you. But John tells us, watch this. So they're having this ridiculous, meaningless argument. And John tells us that Jesus, and these are his words, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, Jesus knew who the greatest was. And he knew it wasn't any of those 12 guys. He knew who he was. And the Bible says he rose from dinner and he robed himself in nothing but a towel, just like a slave in those days would have. And what he did was wash those braggarts' feet. In a place where people went barefoot, people wore sandals, and the primary mode of transportation was either walking or animals, your feet were probably pretty nasty back in those days. And Jesus, while these guys are having this huge argument trying to decide who's the head hot dog in Jesus' kingdom gets down on his knees wearing nothing but a a towel and scrubs their nasty, filthy. And he tells them these words. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and, and the leader as the one who serves. If all of that wasn't awkward enough at this celebration, if that wasn't so awkward for everyone present, Jesus drops the ultimate dinnertime bombshell when he abruptly announces as they're all casually reclining at the dinner table in Middle Eastern fashion, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now we can't even begin to understand the shock that this brought through that congregation. We can't even begin to understand it. It would be like your dad standing there casually carving the Thanksgiving turkey. Everybody's milling around and suddenly announcing, oh, by the way, Uncle Larry hired a hitman to kill me. Now you laugh, but imagine if that was just kind of 
put out there. Well, what shock. How would that devastate you to hear those kind of words? That's exactly what Jesus did. And no one in the room, this was interesting to me, no one in the room seems to doubt the accuracy of Jesus' prediction. Oh, Jesus, you're just being paranoid. Oh, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no. Oh, no. No one in that room doubted it. In fact, the atmosphere was charged with fear and suspicion as all the disciples in turn look at Jesus and they ask these words, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Could that possibly be somewhere tucked in my heart that I would, I would do that, that I would literally sell you out, Jesus? And Jesus answers these words. He says, sounds kind of cryptic to us, but he says, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. Now, what I want you to understand is according to the custom of a Middle Eastern dinner, each guest would tear a piece of bread or a piece of meat and they would dip it into a common bowl of sauce. So this is my point. As they would have all done that at this point in the dinner, Jesus wasn't pointing to one of them in particular. He was saying this. He was saying that someone here present Calling himself my friend has had the audacity to enjoy my hospitality while also planning my demise. What Jesus is saying. And can you imagine how that would have shifted the atmosphere in that room? Jesus also raises the stakes when he pronounces a curse on the perpetrator, even as he acknowledges that his betrayer is working according to God's plan. He says this, for the Son of Man goes to the cross, is what he means, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now notice, I want to point this out again, notice that every single person in the room says this, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Horrified that they could possibly stab their master. That's what Lord means. It means you're my master. That they would possibly stab their master, who they love so much, who they love so much in whom they've submitted their lives, that they could possibly stab him in the back. Watch this. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? See, Jesus, Judas rather, Judas never called him Lord. He never called him Lord. Simply Rabbi, teacher, is what that means. Jesus was not someone that Judas thought he owed any worship or submission to. Nothing. He said, in his mind, his heart, he he said, Jesus, you're just one more voice. You're just one more opinion among many in my life. See, loyalty to Jesus requires that we acknowledge his supremacy. Jesus doesn't co-lead with anybody. He is in charge of all, or he's not in charge at all. Loyalty to Christ acknowledges that we su- acknowledges the supremacy and, and we submit our lives to his command. Otherwise, he is not Lord. He's just another lifestyle accessory, another token of our carefully crafted identity. And in the light of all this talk of betrayal, Simon Peter, who had been the de facto leader of the disciples and was probably arguing the loudest to be considered the greatest earlier, All this is going on. He's filled with indignation, and he throws all of his fellow disciples under the bus. He tells Jesus, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then he adds, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Bravo. Good job, Peter. You tell those suckers. Imagine his shock when his beloved Lord looks him square in the eye and says this, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you... Deny me 
until you deny three times that you even know me. See, this annual celebration, this Christmas, this Thanksgiving, this annual celebration was not turning out the way the disciples had hoped. I mean, Jesus was kind of being a buzzkill this year. If I were to assign one theme to that night, it would be unrealized expectations. It was beginning to seem like everything the disciples hoped for in their time with Jesus was just circling the drain. Where now would they place their hope? See, they had believed that Jesus had showed up and that he would use his divinity to whip the Romans and send them packing back to Rome as he took his rightful place as the king of all the Jews. It was only logical, of course, that they, his closest friends, would, be, would occupy the 12 highest positions in this new kingdom. And so why not jockey for the best positions now, right? I mean, it just makes sense. But here's Jesus wearing nothing but a towel looking like a common household slave and washing their feet. And he has the audacity to say to his future cabinet members, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. You want to be important in my kingdom? Get your towel out. Grab your wash basin and get to work. That's how greatness is found in my kingdom. See, they thought they would rule, but now they've been called upon by Jesus to serve in the most sacrificial, even humiliating ways. Unexpected or unrealized expectations. Unrealized expectations. See, they thought they would be a prime example to the rest of the world of, of cohesive, unified leadership. The judges of all Israel. But now here's Jesus telling them that one of them would most assuredly betray him. Now, what kind of a way was that to start a new government? Imagine the criticism, imagine the mockery, the scandal that awaited them. Unrealized expectations. Now we find out that even their leader to this point, the one that Jesus himself had called a rock back in Matthew 16, is about to be so scared that not only will he neither die nor go to prison with Jesus, but he will deny that he even knows him three times unrealized expectations. Everything they thought would be part of the package has just been exploded right before their eyes. Can I get real with you and ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever thought that the roadmap was clear, the GPS was telling you right where you were going to go, and everything just crumbles right before your eyes? What was that safe bet? What was that sure thing that blew up in your face? How did you feel when it happened? Did you feel abandoned? Did you feel depressed? Did you feel dejected? Did you feel forgotten? Well, how in the world do you think the disciples felt? They'd left literally everything to follow Jesus. Probably none of us in this room can say that. They left everything. They, they left their jobs. They left their homes. They left their families. This was not the way it was supposed to turn out. Is Jesus oblivious? Did he even care? Unrealized expectations. When people who don't know Jesus Christ face unrealized expectations, most often they're just shipwrecked. They're just dashed against the rock. They place all of their hopes for their future and having plenty of money and good health and social acceptance. But now look how Jesus describes those whose best laid plans disintegrate before their eyes. He says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell. And my dad, it always does. And the floods come, came and 
they always do, and the winds blew, and they always will, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Built the house where we're going to live. This is where shelter and provision is going to take place. Didn't anticipate the storm, unrealized expectation. But faith, see, in the goodness and the sovereignty of God gives believers confidence and gives them peace that even in the face of the worst lack, the worst betrayal, and the worst failure that life can bring, we are unshaken. See, everything the disciples had hoped for, everything they trusted in, it was all unraveling before their eyes. But Jesus was about to demonstrate that despite all appearances, he still had an unshakable plan. Can you just believe with me this morning that Jesus was never out of control? Even when he, even when he just ruined Passover for all those 11 guys, 12 guys, he was still entirely in control. How? How do we have any indication of that? Luke 22:19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, Jesus was saying that the pure Passover bread made without a hint of yeast, which represents sin, it was without yeast, it, it was the same kind that these guys had broken with their families on this one holy night since childhood. And, and he was saying now that, guys, you've gotten it wrong. This points to me. This, is, this bread is my body given for you. It points to me. It points to my salvation. It's not about something that happened to your forefathers hundreds of years ago, but rather it's about something that would happen to Jesus for them in 24 short hours. Bread of life would be broken, not because of any crime for which he was guilty, but his body would be given for them. The innocent one would be sacrificed for the guilty masses and their hands stained with his blood. Henceforth, they would break, from this point forward, they would break and partake of the bread, not to commemorate a miraculous deliverance from Egypt, but now commemorating God's perfect lamb, sacrificed for the sins of those who believe. He told them, do this in remembrance of me. And the Father testified that when I see this blood, when I see this blood, most assuredly, I will pass over you. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The the cup represented his blood that would be spilled like the bread. His blood wouldn't just be poured out willy-nilly, but it would be poured out for them. Unlike the thousands of lambs and goats and oxen that were slaughtered under the old Levitical priesthood that would symbolically cover the sin so that they could be accepted in the congregation, the blood of this perfect sacrifice would make those who receive it really permanently righteous in their standing before God. This was a new covenant in his blood, completely unlike the old one. The Old Testament worked on these terms. See if you like these terms. The Old Testament worked like this. Deuteronomy 28:15 But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments not just the biggies all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you How many of you've got a spot a spotless record this morning you've kept all the commandments of the Lord and if you go to 
read past that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you will find a very, 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 very impressive list of curses. And God says, that's your heritage if you don't do all that I've commanded you. That's the old covenant. But the new covenant will work like this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, which covenant do you prefer, new or old? Which covenant do you prefer? I mean, most of you are saying new, but some of you are still living under the old. You're trying to work your way up the ladder to heaven. And I'm telling you, you will receive nothing but a curse. Nothing. You will never be good enough to satisfy the requirements of the law. So you better be on the hunt for a new covenant. And this one's so much better. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. So even when the disciples' expectations go unrealized, even when your expectations go unrealized, may we wake up to the fact that nothing can stop the hand of the Lord or derail his perfect, beautiful plan. He wasn't, listen, this may shock you, he was not ever interested in giving those 12 guys cushy government jobs. Not one bit interested in that. And, and I hate to tell you this, he's not too interested in making your life all fluffy and comfortable either. Somebody like, is this church? Am I, uh, I thought you were supposed to make me feel better. Jesus is not interested in making your life fluffy and comfortable. He's interested in making you holy. He's interested in saving your soul. He was willing, Jesus was willing to use the unrepented greed and Judas and the cowardice and Peter to accomplish his glorious end. Even their incredible wickedness couldn't stop his plan. And what was that glorious end? It was the salvation of all of those who would believe in his name. Jesus wanted to offer the human race a new covenant of grace to replace the old covenant of works, which was flawed because of human sin. He knew the cross was the only way to accomplish this goal, so he determined to embrace the cross for the joy that would follow his obedience. As you come to the Lord's table today, we'll do in just a moment or two, be honest about the places where you're frustrated because your expectations remain unrealized. I'm not going to ask you to get specific to me or to the people around you, but how many of you raise your hand and say, even this morning you had some unrealized expectations? Anybody? Okay. Appreciate your honesty. I really do. I will raise my hand with you. Be honest about those places where your expectations remain unrealized. Maybe if you're real honest, if you, if you can find the courage to be this honest, Maybe you would even have to admit that you're just a little bit ticked off with God because of it. Oh, surely not, right? We never get mad at God. We never blame God when things go like we didn't think they would go. Maybe you're mad at God because of the sickness that isn't healed or the loved one that isn't saved or the job or the income that you don't have or the people that don't accept you or the vindication that still hasn't come. I want to invite you this morning to acknowledge the way you feel openly to God. Just Tell him the truth. But don't stop there. Don't say, God, I'm ticked off because this expectation is unrealized. Don't, don't stop there. That would be a huge mistake. Take the next beautiful, wonderful, glorious, freeing step that we call repentance. We talked about this this morning in prayer. Repentance is not groveling. Repentance is not, oh, God, I'm such a worm. I'm such a wretch. If you can find it in your heart not to kill me, that would be great. That's, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is the awakening, the glorious awakening to how much better God's way is than your way. And you go, whoa, your face is in the pig slop and you go, whoa, not even the servants in my father's house eat like this. And you get up and you go home. 
And this morning, God is calling many, many, many of you. Saved, unsaved, doesn't matter. God is calling many, many of you to get up. Go home. Your father is waiting. Not waiting with a rod. He's waiting with a robe. He's not waiting with with a, a curse. He's waiting with a ring. He's not waiting with hard labor. He's waiting with a barbecue. He's waiting. He's waiting. Just go home. Go home. Confess to the Father this morning. His way is better. Mark, I don't feel like it's better. I don't understand it. I don't see it yet. I tell you what, your vision will follow your confession. Just confess that he's right and that you're not right. And man, he'll open some things up for you. Confess that you trust his goodness. Confess that you trust his grace. Confess that you trust his wisdom. Confess that you trust his faithfulness. And tell him this morning, take a really gutsy step, and tell him this morning that you're willing to wait for his deliverance. However, whenever, and from wherever it comes, you're willing to deliver. Rejoice no matter what your circumstances, because God is not out of control, and he has not forgotten you. He's going to use every nasty thing that's driving you crazy in your life. Romans 8.28 says, for your good if you love God and you're called according to his purpose. There is nothing that is coming against you right now that can, that can be wasted or ruin you if God has determined to use it for his purposes. And then after you've done all that, come to these tables. And remember that his, what his, it was that his death bought for you. Celebrate that you have an unfading covenant with God, a new, better covenant. Celebrate that you've been declared righteous because of his sacrifice and that all things, as I said earlier, are working together for your good because you love God and that you're called according to, your, to his purpose. I want to ask you all to stand with us right now. We're going to worship. Um, I, I didn't want to rush into the table today. I wanted to give you guys a chance to respond to what I just said. I know that there are people here that say, man, I am, I've been sick so long. I've been broke so long. This relationship with whoever has been strained so long. I am so tired. Jesus knows you're tired. He knows you're tired. But Jesus was preparing for a death that would result in life. The death that you may have to endure, the death that you may have to endure, if you endure it faithfully, will result in life. That may confuse some of you, but if you're where I think you are, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. God wants to give you life today. He wants to give you life. And the first step is not him fixing your circumstances. Your first step is trusting him in spite of them. That's the first step. And so God wants to do something in your day. So please don't waste this time of worship. This is not just some format thing that we're doing. I want to really give you time. In fact, we're, we're, uh, Trace, go ahead and bring the lights back down. Or Cameron, go ahead and bring the lights back down. And I want you to seek the Lord. And I want you to take the opportunity be real honest about him where your expectations are completely unrealized right now. And then just look square in the eye of that thing and you declare his goodness. You declare his faithfulness, his worth, his beauty over that circumstance. Let's go to the Lord.